Do you find it, you know, now when you're doing conferences, do you find people grabbing hold of this concept and embracing it and seeing the fruit in it just like you did 10 and 15 and 20 years ago when they just believe the principle that male and female are different? One of the things we're up against is whenever we talk about men, women will innocently hijack the conversation and say, well, what about us women? And I spend five hours talking about when men feel dishonored and unjustly treated, there'll be a mutiny. They'll either jump ship or they'll throw you over ship. Because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. And every husband and wife are gonna have differences and they're gonna have honest differences. How do you have healthy relationships, particularly in a culture where you're easily triggered, where, you know, if I feel offended, therefore you're offensive and you don't cause me to be the way I am, you reveal the way I am. Howdy folks, welcome back to the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed my discussion, my conversation, my my interview with Dr. Emerson Egrich, and, and you'll see why here in a few minutes as you get to hear it for yourself. I wanted to tell you a little bit about Dr. Egridge before we got going, kind of like his more formal bio, and then you'll be able to hear a lot more of his story throughout our conversation. Based on over three decades of counseling, as well as scientific and biblical research, Dr. Egridge's Developed or Dr. Egridge has developed the Love and Respect Marriage Conference, which he presents to live audiences around the country. This dynamic and life changing conference is impacting the world, resulting in the healing and restoration of countless relationships. Dr. Egridge has, re- has authored several books, including Love and Respect, which is a New York Times bestseller platinum and book of the year award winner, and has sold over 1.6 million copies. Emerson and his wife, Sarah, reside in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and have three grown children. He is the founder and president of Love and Respect Ministries. Okay, there we, I barely made it through that. But I cannot tell you how much value I personally got out of this conversation, and I know that you will as well. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank each and every one of you that have helped, I guess, promote this podcast, whether that's by sharing it on social media accounts or leaving a rating or a review on iTunes or, you know, leaving comments on YouTube, subscribing to our YouTube channel. Thank you so much. That is how this podcast is growing and reaching more people, and it's enabling us to do more of what we love, and that's growing our own ability to thrive as a family and then also reach more families. That's really what we want to do at nowthatweareafamily.com. So thank you so much for being a part of that and enabling us to do that. Enjoy the episode. The Now That We're a Family well, Dr. Egridge, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. I, like I was just saying before we recorded, you have blessed my wife and I in a tremendous way. And the term love and respect is just this common part of Christian vernacular all of a sudden now where people and it's just a household term in Christian marriages and it's impacted countless homes. And I know I'm grateful for that, you know, Countless people are grateful for that. And so we're, I know so many people are excited to hear about your story and about some of the current projects you're working on, but could you, in your own words, maybe tell us who you are, what, what you're currently doing, you know, when you bump into an old friend and they say, Emerson, what are you doing? What's the answer these days? Well, no, that's a good question. Certainly the love and respect concept was not new to me. I mean, the Apostle Paul said it 2,000 years ago in Ephesians 5.33. I pastored, uh, was the senior pastor of Trinity Church in East Lansing, Michigan for nearly 20 years and uh, exposited scripture. And that's where I discovered something in that Ephesians 5.33 passage that we call love and respect. And so we'll comment on that. But I mean, if an old friend said, hey, what, what are you up to? Well, actually, I'm more excited now. Um, you know, they talk about young athletes peak, you know, before they're 35, uh, Tom Brady being an exception to that, but hard scientists in the laboratory, they, they go, do their great discoveries prior to 35, but philosophers and theologians get more seasoned. They get better the older they get. So then the, the key is to be able to contribute something before you die. But, uh, my excitement now in this season is is kind of overwhelming. I get up every morning just thrilled with thinking about things to serve people. And, you know, you just come to a point through experience of just kind of knowing, you know, I think I could share some things that could help people. So if I said to my old friend, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm more excited now than ever. And uh, just hope that the, the runway doesn't get too short on me. 
That's a great answer. And I think that's something that every Christian should aspire to. You know, when I think about this arc in your life and when you talk, when the Bible talks about, you know, the glory of an old man being his, his gray hair and the, his children mean his crown of glory. And also your gray hair is noteworthy too. And so like you're really living that out on, on numerous levels. That's something that is not only biblical, it's something that should should stir up some actual emotion. There should be some sentiment that gets us excited about that. And so I'm curious, you know, with you, it's it's easy to say, well, I'm, I'm in ministry, I'm seeing lives being impacted, but do you think that's something that just somebody that's not, you know, been in vocational ministry or somebody that hasn't had this platform of impacting marriages can also maybe pursue or want in their life as they're growing older? Well, I th- you've nailed it. I think the scripture teaches that whether you're a pastor uh, elder in a church. I mean, Proverbs is very clear on that. And I think that teach us to number our days, the psalmist said that we would present to you a heart of wisdom. And so Sarah and I, back in our 20s, began to pray that early in the marriage. In fact, I kind of anticipated being more fruitful later in life, particularly because I saw a lot of young people burning out and then, you know, compromising the cause of Christ. So at age 25, I chose not to write anything until I was 50. I made a decision to wait 25 years because, first of all, I knew the Lord didn't need me. And uh, I felt like I was um, um, very initiating, uh, had strong convictions, lots of goals. I've always been, you know, uh, very goal-oriented in that regard. So I felt like I needed to kind of allow God to take the initiative with me and not get out over my skis because all you have to do is commit immorality or something of that nature, and uh, everything is lost. And we just look around and see that story countless times. So I made a decision to kind of pace myself, to see it as a marathon. We're going to plod. We're just going to keep at this. And uh, now I'm at that season, uh, you know, so many years later. And and I don't regret that decision whatsoever. And the Lord has certainly blessed that decision. I mean, he can do in a nanosecond what some of us work at trying to get happen, particularly with all the pressure on social media and all the things that are pressuring your generation. Uh, You have to remind yourself you're not needed. It uh, doesn't mean that God doesn't intend to use us, but uh, this is a very important idea in my own heart. The Lord doesn't need me. Uh, take heed, he who thinks he stands, lest he fall, and get up every day with the idea that I might fall, but also that the Lord doesn't need me, but then just abide in him, enjoy him, just enjoy his presence and allow him to do uh, in that nanosecond what maybe we thought we could try to get accomplished in you know this next year. It doesn't mean be irresponsible. That's where we have to get in tune with ourselves. There are some people who are passive and they're more phlegmatic and they're not hardworking. So I'm not really talking to that individual. They need to step out on the water. But the type A personalities need to not get ahead of God in their lives. And I have just recognized there's an Achilles heel and the Satan knows that. And he's a chess player. He's not a, um, uh, you know, a, a uh, quick at this thing. He'll 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 just wait on you, and then comes this moment, thirty years in your ministry, where the thing collapses and you discredit the cause of Christ. And we had exposure to so many people in that regard. So coming back around, I think there is a place for us to realize that gray hair, the white hair. Hopefully, Lord willing, uh, it reflects wisdom and and not uh, a fake lifestyle. Wow. I mean, you just said so many things that really, I think, struck me in, in my heart. And, you know, you may, you mentioned, you know, get out and over, over your skis or plodding along or you're running a marathon and pacing yourself accordingly with that mindset. And you talked about being 25 years of age, maybe having ambition, you had zeal, maybe even had vision that you said, man, I want this to come to fruition right now, tomorrow, next year. And yet the Lord placed it on your heart to walk with him, to just make that practical decision to kind of almost like be quiet for a bit. You're like, Hey, quiet down, quiet down. You know, you're, I want you to learn. That is a, not only a step of humility that the Lord I think does honor and he blesses that. It just seems like a step that can be taken only if you do have a long-term vision. Cause like you said, you're now waking up more excited than ever, Mm -hmm. but that's not how most people think about their life going. I know when I've, you know, I mean, I'm only in my young thirties now, but in my young twenties, I was thinking, man, if I can't accomplish this thing next year, it's not even worth pursuing. And that's such a common attitude, I think, amongst contemporaries of mine, amongst millennials, whereas the Bible speaks to this long-term multi-generational vision. And when I think about investments, you know, 
what good financial investment is made only thinking about next year, right? Like the longer term mindset you can have in anything, the more quality of an investment that you made. So what do you think it was apart from maybe just insight through God's word that gave you that longer term vision more than maybe the average person? And what's something that the average person could learn from that to try to extend, extend their vision and their timeline for their vision? No, I really appreciate that question. Not many people ask that question so thoughtfully. So it's an excellent um, insight in terms of that question. I can only talk to my own experience in that um, we had family problems. My dad had rage issues. Um, my mom and dad uh, divorced when I was one, but then they remarried a couple years later, but then they separated for five years. So mom raised me as a single mother. Uh, we were not a Christ following family. Um, uh, I saw my dad attempt to strangle my mother uh, when I was two and a half. We worked back on that. It's a vivid scene. Um, but uh, then they decided I needed to go to military school, or my mom did. So at age 13 to 18, I went to Missouri Military Academy. And when I was 16, someone gave tickets to the Cadet Corps, uh, an elder at a Presbyterian church, actually, to go see a Billy Graham film called For Pete's Sake. And I heard the message that God loved me, that God was my father, and that uh, I was a sinner, but I didn't really balk at that idea of being in a military school. And uh, but I needed to be forgiven and Christ died in my place. And I understood that he went to the electric chair, so to speak, for what I'd done wrong. And it, it, it clicked. It hit me. So at age 16, I was I'd met with a congressman to go to West Point. I'd met with my the president of the military school because they can make recommendations. So I was thinking West Point, military academy, military career. Um, but then when I came to Christ through Billy Graham, I, this was all a new world. I mean, I thought Billy and I were the only two that knew what was going on. And so I shifted and I, I found out he went to Wheaton College. So I applied to Wheaton. So now I'm a freshman at Wheaton, two years in Christ. I'm 24 months. Now, the backstory on some of this is that at military school, I was second command my senior year. I had all that success. I was voted most likely to succeed. I got all these awards. Then I come to Wheaton. I'm two years into Christ. I'm elected uh, cl freshman class president. But it's then that the Lord said, you know, you're getting out way in front of you. You've only known me for 24 months. All these Sweden students have elected you class president. You, I even gave a devotional once on the book of Ecclesiasticus because I had the Jerusalem Bible, which was an apocrypha material. And, and the joke was one student came up to me afterwards and said, I don't think that's Ecclesiastes. That's Ecclesiasticus. That's in the Catholic Bible. And then I was humiliated. I remember just being humiliated. I just thought, oh, I, I just felt like I grieved God. But then we he lightened me up a little bit. And then we began to joke. He said, nobody, none of the other Wheaton students even recognized that you were in the wrong uh, book of the Bible. Uh, that's not part of the Bible. But in any event, I look back and just realized I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the skills. I had a longing in my heart. But I decided then to move to St. There's St. Elliot Halls, named after Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, uh, single room, third floor by myself to really focus in on what God wanted me to do in my own life and making sure that, uh, you know, that I didn't get ahead of myself. And I just felt I knew I, I only knew the Lord for 24 months. How could I be the class president of all these kids who knew the Lord all these years? They were so wise. And I thought, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. And so, but because I had succeeded in military school, it wasn't important for me to derive my significance from that recognition. And I think that's a very important point. Each of us has to get in tune with what are we trying to prove? Who's on our mental committee? Who are we trying to get the approval of? And should we? And at the end of the day, do they even really care about us? And I made that decision that I've got to try to hear what Christ wants from my life. And it was during that period of time and a little bit later that I began to realize, you know what? You don't need me, Lord, and I don't want to get in front of you, and uh, I want to be used of you. I believe you call, I, and I sense this in my spirit, that he called me to change the world. That's what I believed, and I, but I felt like if this was really of him, he could bring it about, and he would bring it about, and I didn't need to force it. You know, Billy Graham in that L.A. crusade, it was the publisher that said Puff Graham, and Billy Graham overnight was a world phenomenon. He didn't try to make that happen. And I think it's important that all of us allow God to take the initiative so that we can look back and realize that was him rather than my personality type A that made it happen. I've heard people say that mega church is the way it is apart from the Holy Spirit. 
It's due to the abilities of the individuals involved in this thing that's making that happen. It's program-based, they're performing, and just watch the casualties and watch the superstar mindset. And so it's important that each of us then evaluate for ourselves. I'm not recommending that anybody follow my example. The Lord works in each of our lives individually. He called everyone differently that he called in the Gospels. But it's important for us to get in tune with both our strengths and our weaknesses and make sure that if that weakness is far stronger uh, than our ability to overcome it, then first things first, and that is focus in on character. Men, the Growth Initiative is now open for enrollment. The Growth Initiative is a six-week live coaching program for men that are looking to grow in areas of parenthood, in areas of provision, in areas of health, in areas of financial freedom and well-being, really in areas of life that matter most to you. When I look at my life and I think of my faith, my marriage, my my parenting, my physical health, my financial growth and, and ability to provide for my family, I know that in order to see growth in those areas, I've got to have a systematic approach approach to it. So when I look at my ideals and my dreams, those are only good to me if I'm able to break down an actionable plan that I can then execute. And that's what the growth initiative is all about. Customizing your actionable plan to see growth in the areas of life that matter most to you. So if you're a Christian man and you're a husband and you're a father and you want to grow in those areas of life that I already referred to, hop on over to the growth initiative.com. I'll link it below and you'll be able to find a timeline that works for you. Like I said, this is a live coaching program, six weeks long with live calls each week, along with tools and resources to help you up your game in those areas that matter most to you. So head over to the growth initiative.com and you can enroll in whatever time session, whatever time session, whatever session works for you time-wise. so many good things were just said there. And you talked about earlier on, take heed, lest you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall, or yeah, how does it go? Take heed, lest you think you stand. Uh, And so many people at that stage in life or any stage in life, like you said, you had all of the worldly reasons to be confident. You know, you had these, the the accolades, so to speak, or maybe even the pedigree at that point for maybe leadership abilities or charisma and your communication abilities. And yet you saw it fit because of the prompting of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you know what? These abilities aside, the Lord doesn't need those things. And what's even more scary, and you mentioned this, is that we can build things that seem successful, that seem successful according to the world. Numerically, they look successful. And you could have at that point built something that looked very successful. But when you're building it, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. When you think of that, say, no, the Lord's going to build this. And I want to be behind his leading, looking unto him. That's such a good spot to be walking, whether that's in building a ministry, whether it's in leading your family and work in pursuing a career. What did that then look like for you? Because you you mentioned you weren't going to write a book for 25 years. How was it, at what point did it become clear to you that you're saying, okay, the Lord did open this door. I am going to step into this space of speaking to a broader group than just my local community. How did that look? Well, I think early on, I began to realize the local church is God's will. So as I meditated on scripture and I realized, I thought I was going to be an evangelist, but I realized not my gifts as pastor teacher. So early in my faith, I didn't kind of know these things. I thought, well, Billy's an evangelist, so I'll, I'll be an evangelist. But then as I got at Wheaton, I began to realize, no, I have more of an interest in teaching Christians, helping Christians, and it became apparent to me. And then I began to realize the local church, and then it's kind of like, you know, duh, the local church is God's will. It, with all of its flaws, with all of its difficulties, it's still God's will. You know, when somebody gets up in that pulpit and proclaims Christ in a humble, abiding way, something happens. I've heard stories of, of an old farmer who was an elder to church and he got up to pray and he he couldn't even say anything and he broke and began to weep and sob there in the pulpit and revival broke out in the church. The, the, when the Spirit of God is present he, he, in a church, he will do through that local body what he has orchestrated he will do. And so I caught that vision. And so I just said, I'm a pastor teacher and I uh, am committed to serving and, and we, even when I came to Trinity Church, Sarah said, well, what should we do? I said, we just plod and we just love people and we just stay the course. And uh, we did that for 19 years. And I 
was called to study the Bible 30 hours a week. And I did that uh, for 30 years, uh, 20 years. And that's where I discovered this love and respect message from Ephesians 5.33. It wasn't my intent to start a marriage ministry, but I saw something in the Bible that hadn't been addressed. And so I kind of got it out there and this thing exploded. Wow. And I'm excited to get into that, you know, seeing the, those early days of love and respect and it blowing up and just impacting so many homes. But I also, I want to, I want to back up a bit because you talked about this stage of your life being so exciting. And I want to ask about your family, your children, because I don't know if this is a, if this is currently the case, but all three of your children at some point or another have worked with you in your ministry as as adults, as as grown people, which that in and of itself is a testimony to something good happening within the home. And it's also something that I think is inspirational to any parent to have this perspective that not only are you passing on first and foremost a faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished and that they're walking in that, but that there is also this passing on of your knowledge, your skill sets, your giftings. And are they going to walk out in their own way? Of, of course, they're going to have some level of unique abilities and individuality and how they operate within their giftings. But this multi-generational working together really gets me fired up. It gets me ex it gets me excited. So could you kind of speak to that, and whether or not you've got kiddo, any of your children still working with you or if they've moved on and what that looks like now? Right. Well, Jonathan, David, and Joy, the three children, and they're uh, all in their 40s. And uh, Jonathan is a clinical psychologist who works for Love and Respect. He has the Love and Respect Clinic, and then he works uh, on uh, back-end stuff on what we're trying to do in terms of our internet and all that kind of stuff. And we have a podcast, like three and a half million downloads of 125 podcasts out there. So, you know, he's been very instrumental in that. David is a videographer, does much of our videography that we do, and has been behind all of that through the years. And uh, and then Joy oversaw our conferences for about 10 years. And she, um, by the way, there uh, several years back, they had in Christianity Today, the top 33 evangelical leaders under the age of 33. And she was one of them. Oh, cool. But Joy has been one who has seen what I've seen about the celebrity status thing and her burden for her generation as well as younger that you can't buy into the celebrity issue. We've got to serve Christ and understand he alone is the one that is deserving of that fame. But yeah, I think back to the family, I got my PhD in family studies and um, uh, I did my dissertation on effective fathers. And early on, what I was going to perhaps write about was the family, but I decided to wait until my children were adults so that they could speak into the family, the book that I intended to write. But during that period of time, the love and respect message based on Ephesians 5.33 kind of took off and, and ramped up quite significantly. But when I did write Love and Respect in the Family, I had those three uh, address the issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what I remembered I did well, they didn't. And what I didn't remember I did poorly, they did. And there was a, there was a period of time where I'm thinking, man, I had no idea. But we put that in the book, and they've spoken into it, and they're the three that endorsed it. David, my middle, talks about the struggle he had most with me, but he's the one that gives out that book to all of his friends saying, Dad, they don't know how to parent. <laughs> so it's kind of comical. But yeah, I think my desire when we do our parenting conference, I talk about the fact that it's important as parents that we be the real deal, that we be the adult in the room. And as you go through Proverbs, you know, many people, Proverbs 22, if you bring up a child in a way they should go, when they're older, they'll not depart from it. That's not a promise, that's a principle. Uh, and because Proverbs it talks about all these children who rebelled against their parents, and the parents were viewed as righteous. They they were lied against, they were beat up, there was violence. And, um, and you even have this verse that says, answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And so these are pithy statements that are principles, but not necessarily promises. And that's quite upsetting to some people because they want this formula. But there are principles that need to be applied over a period of time. And one of the challenges we had was, how do we create this most loving environment that best motivates our children to choose our faith and values? How do we do that? And how do we be that adult in the room? And, uh, you know, during those year, early years, they'd say, you're the worst parent on the planet. And I said, finally, I'm number one at something. I said, keep the superlatives coming. They didn't even know what the word superlative meant. But, you know, you have to be lighthearted, but you have to stay the course. 
I remember a Friday night when the kids all had an attitude it was they were all teenagers and they left with attitudes. And Sarah said, you know, what should we do? I said, I don't know. She said, you got your PhD and you did your dissertation on effective fathers. You should know what we should do. I said, I don't. I think we just need to pray. We need to give this over. Uh, Hebrew says that the parents discipline according to what seems best. And there's a subjective element there. And we take this by faith and we give this over to the Lord. And there come these moments when we just entrust our children to God. We continue to be the real person, the 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 real deal, as I've said. And and here's the deal: I I can't control the outcomes in my my children as they get older. I can only control my actions and reactions to my children. And so Sarah and I locked into some of these principles with the thought that maybe they're all going to reject the faith. They were PKs, you know. They were brought up in that environment. All the issues that are surrounding that. But today they would all, you know, say that they are conservative, they believe, they have the convictions that we have, you know, we're going to differ on certain things, but overall they have been my greatest fans. And uh, I also say, how, how, you have four children, right? Um, yeah, we're pregnant with our fourth boy, so we're going to have five kids here soon. And so how, what's the genders? So it's going to be four boys and one girl. Yes, four boys and one girl. And one of the points I make, you're a rarity because most People who are focused in on family issues have only one son or all daughters. They do not have two or more boys. Hmm. Because in the academic literature, boys don't abide by the principles. Yes. Little girls tend to be more compliant. And so it's easy for me to be an expert if I've got three girls. So the fact that you are speaking into this with boys, as they get older, you're going to be challenged because they're just not always going to, they're going to be like ping pong balls in a bathtub. But I applaud you for that because we need more people like you to say, you know what, we want to be real. We want to serve Christ. We want to serve our family. We want to be the kind of family that God intends. We don't have a formula here. We're taking this by faith. But hopefully, as one person said, you know, hopefully from our hearts as mother and father, there's a melody coming out of our, our lives. And eventually the children are going to ask for the lyrics to the tune. I love that. And, you know, you mentioned fathering or parenting sons, and I, I mentioned, you know, before, I'd love to hear some about the book that you wrote. It's called titled Mothers and Sons, The Respect Effect. And even though, you know, that's kind of written in the context of mothers, obviously, and sons, I found so much insight in reading that book in simply viewing my understanding my sons, you know, and, and it's funny, I'll be quite honest. When I looked at kind of the premise of the book, I was a little reluctant because I was thinking, okay, wait a second. Does this mean we're becoming subservient? I don't want my wife to become subservient to my sons. You know, they, they need to obey their mom. They need to honor their mom. They need to come under her authority. And I don't want these guys running the house. I kind of inferred <laughs> that by respect, you meant that the mother needs to, like I said, fall in underneath the, right the the temperament or the attitudes of her children and i'm thinking no i don't want any of that in my home but clearly that's not what you intended and so i'm kind of curious as to what led to you moving from you know speaking so effectively to marriages with this whole love and respect concept and then realizing okay there's a huge need in mothers having kind of a similar mindset in parenting their sons well, and that's a particular niche. And backing up for a moment, the love and respect in the family book talks about children honoring parents. That's a huge, that's part of, that's, that's huge. And so that's half of the book, love and respect in the family. So we are all in on that. And how then do we um, help our children honor us? They're not commanded to love us. They're commanded to honor. And so it's very important that uh, your, your audience understand that that's a big deal to me. But as we did the love and respect uh, message to husbands and wives based on Ephesians 5.33 that a husband is to love his wife and a wife is to respect her husband. And we make the point that she needs respect. He needs love. We need it equally. But we've asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved at that moment or disrespected? 83% of the men say they feel disrespected. And 72% of the women say they feel unloved. So generally speaking, the felt need leans in that direction. And most people get it. They kind of, because then we say, you know, what happens when a wife feels unloved? She tends to react in a way that feels disrespectful to him. When he feels disrespected, he doesn't feel unloved usually. When he feels disrespected, though, he reacts in a way that feels unloving to her. 
And that gave birth to the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And this baby spins. And I often say, when the issue isn't the issue, and you see the spirit of your spouse deflate, you're probably on the crazy cycle. And we can say that he ought not to feel the way he feels. We can say she ought not to feel the way she feels. We can bring that moral, philosophical ought not. You know, or we can say, you know, maybe, maybe this is, there's some truth to what Paul is saying. And certainly the research bears this out. But as women at the conferences began to apply this, they said, well, I've got three boys at home. I wonder if I speak to them, maybe say something like, look, I'm not trying to disrespect you right now. I'm not trying to dishonor you. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why you haven't picked up your room. So third time, you're an honorable man. I think if someone came in to try to harm me, you three boys would protect me. You're honorable warriors. But why can't you pick up your room? Help me understand this. How can I express to you my upset without you thinking I'm trying to put you down? I say to ladies, you say it that way and watch the response. Watch the response. So these mothers began to do this because they know they love their sons. I mean, they just love, 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 love. But they also feel at times they don't like the boy. They don't respect. So they'll speak, particularly in this culture, in ways that are very contemptuous. And she can do the same thing toward the daughter, but the daughter instinctively knows mother's venting. And then they'll both say, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Well, I'm sorry. Even a five-year-old girl will start to, you know, they, they start having that dynamic. But little boys will just go quieter and quieter and withdrawn. And then there's not that sense of connection, which is the longing of the mother. So what we've encouraged mothers to think about is just a few vocabulary words, even if it's saying, I'm not trying to dishonor you. That may be foreign. You think, does a five-year-old boy even get that abstract concept? Test it out. Does a little five-year-old girl understand what a dad means when he said, I love you more than life itself? I mean, it's an abstract concept, isn't it? No, it's not abstract. It's within our nature. And so the mother-son book, addresses that idea because it's meeting a need in a boy based on how God designed men. Men serve and die for honor. We are very motivated by that. It's not egotistical because we give our very lives for honor. And that's why we go see Saving Private Ryan or The Gladiator, all these movies that have strong appeal to men. Why? Because that motif is there. Um, you know, Pat Riley had me come speak to the Miami Heat and uh, spoke to the whole team. He said, you're the only person I've ever had speak to the whole team. And we talked about this love and respect dynamic. He and I spent five hours talking about when men feel dishonored and unjustly treated, there'll be a mutiny. They'll either jump ship or they'll throw you over ship. And it's crucial that we understand how to speak words of honor and treat men justly. Now, there are also uh, individuals out there who misinterpret and they think you're dishonoring them. They think you're treating them unfairly when you're not. And so you have to have discernment on this. But given there's a, a goodwill in that person with whom we're dealing, if we truly honor their heart, not honor their bad behavior, we truly treat them fairly. And we even say to our sons, how do I honor you, Nis? How do I treat you fairly? I'm going to be fair with everybody here, but I'm not trying to diss anybody here. But for heaven's sakes, we've got to do this thing differently. Talk to me about how we can do this differently. Propose a plan. Help me with this and watch what happens. Wow. I love that. You know, something that I've always come away from your resources feeling is like, I've been given this insight, I've been given, side, given this insider information. Like I've been handed the playbook as to how, if I want a, a romantic, vibrant marriage, I've been given the language and, and the attitude and how, how to do that. And I can't help but think it's the same when I read this book about mothers and sons, because as I'm reading about some of these innate characteristics or desires of a boy, as a man, I'm saying, yep, yes, amen, that's right. And if my wife is able to understand that about her sons, just the, the, the like I said, she's been given the playbook, like, oh, I've been given the insider information and how to speak to my boys in a way that's going to just make them rise up and walk in so much more, I guess, character and maturation in a way that they are created to do. Now, this requires a little bit of countercultural thinking going back to Genesis. It's it's like you have to believe Genesis almost like, oh, wait a second. God created us male and female in the image of him. God created us this different innate thing. Now, in your years of doing this with marriages and with now parenting and an overall family, 
again, you've remained so faithful to God's word, which is a huge inspiration as cultures shifted and changed and will continue to do so, you know, for forever. You've remained faithful to God's word. Do you find it, you know, now when you're doing conferences, do you find people grabbing hold of this concept and embracing it and seeing the fruit in it just like you did 10 and 15 and 20 years ago when they just believe the principle that male and female are different? Well, I think you address the culture. There is a shift that's going on. But I think, you know, when you talk to people about the fact that, hey, uh, we're going to have differences due to our gender, our upbringing, our spiritual gifting, our temperament, our talent, our interest, our our uh, uh, responsibilities that are in front of us, our personalities, people get it. That So one of the things I talk about, that, look, we're not, there's no stereotypic kind of conclusion here. Each of us has to decide, you know, because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. And every husband and wife are going to have differences and they're going to have honest differences. The question is, is that okay? And if it is okay that we look at things differently due to all these things I just stated, then the question is, how do we navigate that? And I certainly feel that there's still a, the world is interested in understanding these things and they want to mutually understand each other. And uh, so we have just been so overjoyed at the response over the years. And I think what seems simple to me that, you know, like, for instance, the, the not wrong, just different, or there's a pink and blue difference. You know, some people don't like the pink and blue, particularly when a man talks about it. But when I just say, you know, we have pink and blue differences, that's a word picture. And just keep that in mind. She looks at the word through pink. He looks at the word through blue. And that's OK. Just keep that in mind. And just ask yourself at times where you're having a conflict, is this because they're really abnormal and they're resisting you or they're honestly looking at this thing? Uh, through a different lens. And if so, just say, neither one of us are wrong. We're just different. We both have goodwill. I don't like you right now. You don't like me either, but we can move through this, you know? Yeah. And it's okay, because here's the deal. I mean, it was years ago that uh, Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, said, if if we're both the same, one of us is unnecessary. Yes. Wow. I love that concept. And the beauty of two becoming one, this, there's a mystery in this thing. And the idea of being so much more like your efforts, your energies, your capabilities, they're not just doubled when you enter into marriage. There's some sort of quantum mathematical like magic that happens when two become one, where the fruit of that is, is not just doubled efforts. You know, it's like 10x, it's 100x. And to be able to embrace that, I think, requires an element of letting go of this idea of, I'm an individual, like I need my individualistic notoriety or my purpose in, in life. Whereas when you look at the calling that God's placed on the home, on the family, it's as a unit, you know, it's saying, man, a man and a wife, they become one. It's a mystery. Then the children fall in this order of Christ. And then, you know, Christ being submitted to the father, the father being submitted to Christ, then the wife, just this, this hierarchy that we all, that we know just from looking around, that's how any functional institution organization works, right? There's this structure of hierarchy. Now, when you go through your years of family ministry, and then you look at what the world's facing today, okay, you've, you've had, you, you've been able to raise your children, you, and then you're looking at this, what do you think are some unique pressures to the family today, when they're looking at what God has called the family to be? Well, I certainly feel if I was raised in this culture today as the young boy that I was, I think when I was there as a young boy, we kind of had a moral consensus and a moral compass. And I think right now there's no consensus about what necessarily is right and wrong. And I think that's leading to confusion. There is an ill will on the part of uh, these younger generations, but I think there's just an honest desire to what is right, what is true. And they're, they're trying to figure this out. And the hope is that you know, as we give voice to these things, it, it has the ring of truth, that there's a sense, you know what, that just makes sense. And there's a, a movement, even among Gen Z, we think that they're kind of saying, wait a minute, you know, it seems to me that we kind of got to return to some of these, you know, uh, traditional ways, which seems anathema to say, or it's taboo to say, but people don't want to be unhappy. They don't want to be lonely. They don't want to go through these negative experiences, and, and they're encountering that. And so I think there's a real openness to thinking again about what brings about satisfaction, what brings about happiness. How do you have healthy relationships, particularly in a culture where you're easily triggered, where, you know, if I feel offended, therefore you're offensive. If I have hurt feelings, it's because you're a hurtful person. Well, you're going to go through about five or six marriages before you wake up at age 60 and realize I was holding everybody else responsible for my responses 
rather than coming to a point where I said, my response is my responsibility. And you don't cause me to be the way I am. You reveal the way I am. Wow. And that is a revolutionary concept. And that's one that I've been espousing for a long time. But it's intimidating up front because it, it puts me in a situation where I have to deal with other people who are irregular in my life. And I don't like irregular people. But if at the end of the day, they determine whether or not I'm going to be happy or sad, and they are contributing to my sadness, then I have to get them out of my life. And at the end of the day, the question is, how many people can you get rid of? Wow. You know, I love what you just said. You know, you, you mentioned earlier on in our conversation when you were younger, you're saying, what if I actually stopped caring about everybody's opinion, what everybody else said? And I kind of, mm -hmm. yes, that, that mental committee. And, and I was actually living as before God, you know, what he thought, what he was thinking of me, what he's said about me. And then you take that mindset into parenting, you take it into marriage and you're able to go to God's word with this humility and saying, you know what, this is what I feel, but I want to see what you actually say, you know, what's going to be the authority and what's going to dictate my decisions that is that gets to pull rank over my feelings or over my initial response. And when you're able to apply that to your life, I'm with you. There is good fruit that comes from that. You know, it's not that God is this, uh, you know, celestial vending machine, but he has these principles, like you said, throughout Proverbs, throughout his entire word, they're saying, hey, more times than not, when you do this, this happens. You know, a soft answer, more times than not, turns away wrath. And you're able to say, you know what? I want to believe that. I want to grab hold of that principle and apply it to my life. And the fruit of that can be very rewarding. And like you said, people are looking for, they're looking for happiness. You know, people don't want death and destruction even though oftentimes our inclinations lead us to that. And so there does seem to be this open-mindedness to what people might call traditional values or old-fashioned, you know, ways of life. And we're saying, man, this is, this is what God has said. You know, he said this from the beginning, and there's a real blessing in it. A few things I want to ask you about, especially pertaining to this mother and son book. So you, first off, you're, you're like the king of acronyms. Has that been something that you, you've always, you've always done? I'm like, man, you're, you're going to make an acronym out of anything. I tell you what, but this acronym, you know, after kind of looking at the, uh, there's a chapter where you talk about seeing the man in the boy. And this, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just saw myself in this, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking that's, that's me right there. And you go on to say that a man has these six desires and I'll list them off just cause I mean, you know, and then maybe you can speak to them, but you go, you know, he's got this desire to work and achieve, to provide, protect, and even die, to be strong and lead and make decisions, to analyze, solve and counsel, to have friendship and work shoulder to shoulder, and then to be sexually understood and to know sexually. Now, when you apply that, you know, cause you could say that just to men. And so a wife could take that and that could be very insightful into her marriage or that's even insightful for me. But what would this look like taking that into parenting, into, into applying that toward a, a mother and her son? Well, that's what we did. We took that acronym plus the gu the, uh, the, the guide's idea that the, the giving, the understanding, the instructing, the disciplining, the encouraging, and the supplicating, and then chairs, conquest, hierarchy, authority, insight, relationship, and sexuality. Those are those acronyms. And, and they are intertwined as you look at this. And so what we try to do is create a script that we referenced earlier. Mothers will often say, I don't know what, how to say this. So I've written out all these different scripts. Try this. This isn't in etched in stone, but try that script. But also understand the why behind this, like in terms of, of the conquest, the C, this idea of work. I mean, I point out, what's the first question every man asks another man when they meet for the first time? What do you do? What do you do? And in the academic literature is called the instrumentality of the male. He identifies himself by what he does in the field. It doesn't mean that women don't have careers that they work. And one of the things we're up against is whenever we talk about men, women will innocently hijack the conversation and say, well, what about us women? I mean, I joke all the time about the mother son book. And, and I, I will say to people, uh, the first question every woman in this audience is going to ask is when are you going to write one about father daughter? I said, you'll hijack it, not because you have any ill will, but you've been conditioned by the culture to defend females as though somehow they're going to be put down. But we've got to understand that there's something we're saying about our sons here, apart from your daughters who also need respect, 
who also can conquer in their field. We're not saying something against her because we're talking now about the deep soul of this boy. But we do know that Adam was designed in Genesis to work in the garden. He was called to cultivate and maintain the garden before Eve was even created. And so here you have this account where Adam was designed to work. And this is deep. I had two men that I knew both had terminal illnesses. And um, they were ready to die and were at peace. But then they were healed. And the one had to sell his business so he had no work to do. And the other guy was fired. And they went into a clinical depression that contributed to suicidal thoughts. Now, many women don't fully get that. But most men do. And so this is deep within the soul. So one of the things about a son is understand there's something in him that wants to achieve, that wants to accomplish, that wants to conquer. And, and so as you begin to think about your boys, you're going to see that within him and you can speak into that. And we talk about that particular concept alone in the book. And we give all kinds of illustrations of how you can begin to address these things. The key is to say these things to motivate him, not to manipulate him. It's a gift that you're giving to him because he has a need. And it's also a process. It's not just a one and done to get him to quit irritating you. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that mothers could be fulfilling the work of taking care of their son's physical needs, you know, tending to their physical needs, feeding them, clothing them, teaching them, you know, even disciplining them, and yet fail to meet what you even call their greatest need, this need to, to feel respect. Now, this isn't, it's even awkward a little bit when I'm reading kind of some of the examples in the book. I'm thinking this isn't how we talk. You know, we, I am so good at saying, I love you. Like, I love you, son. I love you. How do you recommend, I know you give examples in the book, but maybe you could give some examples here to a mother, including this into her vocabulary, you know, in addition to just saying, I respect you, son. I respect you, son. Right. What right. are ways that we could actually communicate this if we don't feel comfortable saying it just like that? Yeah, well, I think one is to say, you know, I know you want to be an honorable man. And I know yes. this isn't in keeping with what I think you really see in yourself and what I see in you. And and maybe we need to revisit what's happened here because you're an honorable man. Let's, let's talk about this. Rather than saying, I respect you, appeal to the fact that he wants to be an honorable man. Or say, you know, one of the things I value about you is the fact that you're so honest. I don't compliment um, uh, unchangeable features. You, you don't you don't say to a, a beautiful daughter, you know, I love you because you're so gorgeous. Because now if she's in a wreck, so you have to compliment character qualities, the virtues that they're working at. You know what I really respect about you is you could have lied there and you didn't. Yes. You know, I just, you, what an example you are to me. That's incredible. You know what? I salute you. Hmm. See, yeah. rather than saying, I want to give me a kiss, you know, you just... I salute you. Do those things that you might see a man do at times and watch what happens. Just as every woman is coaching dad. Now, now listen to her. Don't, don't, don't get angry. Don't be harsh. Listen to her. Uh, notice the dress that she has on. Tell her that she looks lovely. You know, mothers are speaking into this all the time, but we've gone silent because we don't know what I'm now trying to espouse here about boys. We used to know it, but it's now been framed from a standpoint that it's toxic that it's uh, there was one politician just came out we need to revisit the importance of men being strong he just came out i just read it today because we've made men so soft and we're saying they're toxic they need to be like women and uh, that's not going to be ultimately what women want men as i often say you know all things being equal somebody comes into the house to threaten the family he's dying we're we're gonna we're it's in us to protect and to provide, and that you need strength. You don't want him to cower in the corner and say to the wife, "You've been taking kickboxing. Why don't you get that bad man?" Yeah, and you go on to even talk about how that's innate in men, and that is something that we've been given, or Christ has exemplified that. You say it was we're called to love. Men are called to love their wife as Christ loved the church. Well, what did he do? He laid himself down for it. Right. He he did pay the ultimate sacrifice. And you talked about that there being this kind of deep, innate knowledge in men that, yes, we're the ones that lay our life down for the woman. We are the ones that die for the safety of, of our wives. Now, this, like you said, isn't to say that you don't equip your wife and your daughters to to fight. You know, they can be warriors, too. They can be good, good, good 
at defending themselves and have good skills in that area, but it's innate in men because of what Christ has called us to and what he has exemplified to us. And that really resonated with me. And then you go on to talk about, you know, I think you share about the conversation you had with Gary Chapman and, you know, of course, five love languages is, is so helpful and it's impacted my life and, and so many people's lives. But I think you, you said, man, I think we need the, um, you say the five respect languages. Is that, is that what you said? And when you shared those examples, I was like, man, is that not true? The way that a sword being gifted to a boy be hung on his wall, he'll know that that symbolizes honor, it symbolizes respect, but maybe culture and maybe something that a woman might naturally see in that is violence and danger. What are some other examples that this plays out in, in that father or sorry, in that mother son relationship? Well, I think several things you've said there. One, when we talk about the male's innate desire or willingness to die, we're not saying that women aren't going to die or die for their children. Mothers will die for their children in a heartbeat. But in, when all things are equal, it goes down. Usually the man, he's just there's something in him to do that. And what we're saying is we're not trying to be derogatory toward females. We're trying to honor men. And as a culture, some people are embarrassed by doing that. I think uh, the idea of the 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 the, the gun. The, the boys will make the 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 gun in their hands, and the culture now says he's going to be violent. They don't see it as his belief in himself that he's protecting. If you watch how little boys play, they don't want to be the bad guy. They're the good guy that rescues. They'll be the bad guy because somebody needs to be the bad guy, but they want to be you know the good guy that's defending as the hero. It's in us to do the good and to be goodwill, but we see the instrument to uh, use the sword or even in hunting and gathering. Uh, what is it that causes a boy to want to pick up a rifle? It's that instinct that God's put there to go out in the field and to bring home, you know, meat, so to speak. You know, when we were an agrarian society, that was honored. The, 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 the 10-year-old boy learning to shoot with the rifle so that he could go, you know, not only protect mom and the daughters from the bear, but go out and get food. And God has hardwired men to go out and be quiet for six hours. And even today in Michigan, opening honey day, a million men, almost, men, you know, there are women out there, but a lot of times it's the daughters going with their dads because that's a very important relationship. Again, there are exceptions to this, but it's it's so statistically significant that you just have to ignore the science. But the point is, they want to go out. They don't say, oh, we got to go hunt again. No, they want to. And then that also, Harry, who talks all the time, three other guys said, put a sock in it, Harry. Shut up. <laughs> just be quiet. So God is hardwired meant to be in the field. They don't need to connect. They don't need to talk. They want to provide. Now, these are broad statements, but they give us a nugget of insight into why maybe your son is quiet, why he doesn't need to respond to the 20 questions you've asked him about his day. Your daughter will engage that, but your son just kind of wants to avoid that. Is that because he's setting on something or he doesn't love you? No. Uh, and in the book, I address the explanations behind some of that stuff. And once we see some of this, and there are exceptions to everything I'm saying, so I'm never going to not say there aren't exceptions. But once we see this and we say, you know what, this is kind of true in my family, it's it's just so liberating, so mm -hmm. freeing, so energizing. And we're giving our children, in this instance, a gift. I mean, your sons in particular are going to be energized by certain words. And you've seen it. And you yourself in reading this realize that's me. Yes. And that's okay. That's yes. okay. Yeah, I think you talk about that there comes a point, you know, in, in a son's experience with his mother where he says, can we stop? Talk can we please stop talking now? <laughs> like, can we just no more 20 questions? We're done. Yes. You know, I'm ready to get back to work. And, and you even give some really practical examples when it comes to the whole five love languages. If it's quality time, that might look like it probably will look like shoulder to shoulder work. Exactly. exactly. Getting down and do, doing something with exactly. them. I say that. And on that point, it's a good one for mothers listening. What does this kind of look like? Well, for instance, you want to connect with your son and, and you want to connect with him by connecting through face-to-face -face talking so you understand what he's feeling going through and so on and so forth. It just, God is hardwired you to connect that way. But a son will feel affection toward his mother a lot of times. You've got two boys playing catch in the backyard. 
Just go out there, sit in a chair, don't have your phone, don't be distracted, don't be reading a recipe book. Just watch them, give them 15 minutes of just watching them. Don't say anything other than, wow, great catch. Wow, you guys are both, you know, however you want to compliment. That's sincere. And then get up and go in and say, hey, boys, 10 minutes, the dinner's going to be ready, but I need you to come in five minutes because you didn't make your beds. They're in. Wow. Wow. I love that practical example. Uh, I'm going to ask you kind of speak to one more topic here and then, and then I'll let you go. Cause I want to respect your time, but you go in to talking about mothers and sons when it comes to sexuality. And this is a big topic. You even joke that you're saying, man, women are either going to ignore this altogether and say, I don't want to think about it. I'm going to let the father handle that. And you do encourage the fathers to step up and to take point in that situation. And I really appreciate that because I think that is such a great spot, great thing for the, the father to really take lead in. However, the mother's going to have a role in, in that discussion. And another common mistake that you see is women just thinking the best of their sons to the, to the point of saying, that's not going to be a struggle, you know, for, for my son there. And I hear that all the time. So I'm thinking, Oh boy, you know what, what silly thinking that, you know, that they won't fall to the same things that other sinful men fall to. What are some frameworks that we can use that mothers could use in thinking about sexuality and their sons? I mean, we're in a, in a world that's so por pornography is so rampant, you know, it's everywhere. And you even talk about how the pornography industry capitalizes on that chairs acronym, you know, the conquest, the what, you know, the hierarchy, the you they hit on all of those key elements that are innate desires of a man, obviously in a sinful, you know, defiled way. So what are ways that mothers can be helpful? You know, they don't have to be scared. They don't have to run, but they can have a little bit of, you could talk about sympathy in this area so that they don't, they don't, they aren't willy nilly with it and say, ah, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke, but at the same time, they're not condemning and shaming to their sons. Well, I think you've captured it. I mean, there's a balance there. You can't ignore it. On the one hand, you're saying we want to, none of us like to think about those dark sided issues. This is a dark topic and it's very, very uh, disheartening to a mother who tends to be virtuous, that's not her temptation. It's just not part of her mindset. She's just not there. And this innocent boy, surely he's not going to struggle with that. And that's because he's not going to in any way talk to her about that. And some of that as they get into the 13, 14, they go quiet because that inner world now is taking place. So we've got to recognize there is this exposure, the exposures earlier on. And so there, the technology now also is out there that you can protect your children a little bit. There's covenant eyes. There's all kinds of things. And I think this is probably something that you are addressing with the, the parents that are out there. But I think the other side of that is that one has to prepare herself not to shame, not to then just go crazy in the event that there is an exploration, there is a, a, an exposure of something, uh, but there needs to be a thoughtfulness there, okay? What's going on here? And that that has to be something you pray about because it's not natural. There is either just going to be a suppression of it. I didn't see what I just thought I saw and just deny that that's even there, or there can be an overreaction. And that's where you need to honor your husband, his insight, the other men around. And, and, and this is where if you honor men by saying in your world, I need your wisdom here. You know, my son's up against this. Coach me. Uh, you you are honorable men. How should we respond to this without giving away secrets that's going to humiliate the boy? But instead, it's there to honor the men, and and, and in that sense, we are in this as a family. And, um, and but I think this is something that has to be. It's called anticipatory socialization. That one has to anticipate that that exposure is there, and it's going to be enticing. The there the nucleus accumbens in the brain. When a woman sees a, a, a baby, it, it fires. She just, <gasps> you know, God has hardwired her to respond with this energy. When a man sees a female form that's attractive, that nucleus accumbens fires. And I've said to the Lord, this doesn't seem fair, Lord. They get all excited about virtue. We get all excited about a potential vice. And this is a, this is a problem that we as men have. Women have a problem with fear. And there's more written against fear than there is against lust. But we condemn the men for their struggle, and we're empathetic toward the issue of fear because we've kind of neutralized that. But we have to recognize that 
Fear is also sinful, but we don't even frame it that way. But my only point here isn't to somehow make women feel badly. It's to say that we all need the Savior. The ground at the cross is, is even. And so your son is going to have his unique struggles. You have yours. And all of us need the Savior. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need strength. But if we become self-righteous, judgmental, condescending, and angry toward people who are struggling in areas that we by nature don't struggle with, and don't pay attention to our own struggles, then we're not going to be empathetic. We're not going to be compassionate. We are going to shame. We are going to condemn. And what we have to do is step back and say, we're all sinners in need of the Savior. My son has a different struggle, and I need wisdom on how to address this. It doesn't need to be a daily thing. It doesn't need to be a monthly thing. But it needs to be something you pray for him about, pray for his protection. One of the prayers that Sarah used to pray, Lord, if there's anything I need to know, let me know. And that's a frightening prayer at one son, but it also prevents you from being this helicopter mom. I'm going to just hover over this boy because there's there are consequences of that that are detrimental. He's He's got to be allowed to become, the, the young man leaves father and mother. He's more independent. He's going to be, I talk about you, you control at first, then you, then you counsel, and then you cast off. And you're going to be casting him off. He's going to be more independent. And he's, he's going to learn how to avoid you. And there's going to be that moment where you, you can't guard him 24 hours a day. And so part of that prayer is, Lord, reveal to me anything I don't know so that I can serve my son, who my desire is that he would honor you and that you would use him. And have that pure prayer and then just entrust that. But I want to circle back to get the counsel of the men in your life. And what a great way to honor them. Um, you don't need to say, how do you men struggle with this? <laughs> don't, don't, don't put them in a position like that. Say, give me counsel on how we can move forward. Don't be talking about what have you guys done with your pornography addictions? Sometimes we say things innocently. We're so innocent, but we, we lock people up around us. So that would be a thought. And I know that you probably addressed that and you can add about three to five extra things to that. Well, I really appreciate what you just said there. And I, and I love the the big picture, you know, you, you definitely close out this book that I'm speaking to, you know, and I think you always have this message in all of your, in all of your teachings, this overall hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know, he has accomplished the perfect work and we can look unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we can come boldly to the throne room of grace and we can cast all of our cares upon him with prayer and supplication. We, we can make a request to be made known unto him and he'll guide and keep us. And, and I love that at the beginning, at the end, in the middle, spread. That's the foundation. You know, it's it's in everything that we do. And then we take that and we look at the practical insight that the Word of God has given us. And you break that down in such an effective way. I mean, you even talk about just how sons are so much more prone to sharing deep and intimate and insecure things when they're doing something with their parents. And it's so funny because literally yesterday we were, we went to Home Depot, my wife and I did, and we were, I was unloading some uh, topsoil with my son from the back of the car. And we were going back and forth to our garden, back to the car. And like on our fourth trip, you know, he says, so daddy, and he's just six years old. He goes, so daddy, it's okay. It's okay if mommy and daddy see our bottoms, but I don't want anybody else to see my bottom. He goes, but sometimes a doctor can see my bottom, right? And I go, yeah. And of course, that's one of those things that a little boy, it's awkward. He's he, he's chewing on this. And I'm thinking, yeah, boy. He's trying to figure this out. Yeah. And here we are. It took Beautiful. him and I working in the garden, going back and forth. And he's able to get that off his chest, so to yes. speak. Yes, yes, You know, yes. and I thought that's that was. Shoulder. And that's what we say. When you do shoulder to shoulder things with boys, not with the intent to get him to talk, but just because just that shoulder to shoulder is energizing them, they'll they'll start talking. Yes, that's exactly They won't talk right. necessarily for 15, 20 minutes. They won't say, can we take a break? But they'll, okay, so it's okay for you and mom to see my bottom and a doctor. He's processing. That was a deep thing that he's been thinking about. And there you see human sexuality. You don't see lust, but you see the human sexuality. God has designed children and all of us to be very aware of sexuality in its purest sense. And so he's understanding, he's asking questions, he's he's trying to think what's modesty, what's not modesty, what's right, what's wrong. These are beautiful things. You could say to him, you know, I just really want to honor you for what you shared with me. Man, that, that was really a great question. You talk about a great question. Wow. Wow. Man, I love that. That was, wow. You know, yes. there it is. That's yes. all you have to do. 
Yes. You know, I mean, and you did that and you, and I, I but there's a, a great example of how then we can trail on that. And even moms will say, well, at the moment, I didn't think about that. Revisit it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Well, Dr. Eggridge, thank you so much for your time. I want to know, are there, what's happening with love and respect? You know, what are things that we can look for? Do we have events? Do we have any upcoming releases? What's, what's going on? Yeah, releases. We are, we've been working the last 10 months on our new uh, website, loveandrespect.com. It's not up yet. I mean, we have the old one, which is very, very good. So that's always been a great tool, but I'm putting most of my efforts now moving forward on loveandrespect.com and providing all of the content on marriage, on parenting. And then because I pastored for all these years, pastorally, that's who I am, on, on things of the Christian life. So these are the three topics, marriage, parenting, and the Christian life. And then within that, my son, who's clinical psychologist, I reference, we're doing a podcast. We're writing blogs. We have like 800 blogs, maybe about 200 of these are all new that I've been working on the last several years in, in anticipation of this major launch. So we're, we're excited about giving this information to people who really hunger for it. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about these, some of these things for 50 years, half a century. And uh, we're at that season, as we said earlier, to really hopefully, you know, provide uh, what we've learned in that time period. Wow, that's so exciting. And I'll be sure to link all of this below in our show notes. And just coming from somebody that is hungry from resources. And I mean, when I think of being a young family, it's like what we want resources. We want biblical counsel. We want biblical insight, practical application. And so I am so thankful that people are going to be able to have access to this. And yeah, I just can't wait to keep pointing more and more people to, to this. And thank you so much for all that you do for the Christian community and for families. Thank you. God all bless right. You. Well, bless you too. Thank you. Thank you.